go ahead and open your Bible to John chapter 4. John, actually John chapter 5. Let's just skip right into John chapter 5 this morning. John chapter 5. We come to a passage that launches an extended discourse from Jesus, one that runs from verse 19 all the way to the end of the chapter and contains for us some of the richest theology in John's gospel. And the catalyst for this discourse is a healing miracle by the Lord Jesus Christ, one that he performs on the Sabbath and results in a confrontation between him and and the Pharisees. So we're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage. And if you have an ESV, you don't have the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4. And so as I read here, there's going to be a portion not in your Bible as I read this passage. Chapter 5, let's read it beginning in verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the waters. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath that day, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet? The man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We come to a new section in John's Gospel. In the last section, Jesus returned to Galilee to avoid confrontation with the Pharisees. Due to his rise in popularity, he was drawing too much attention to himself, and that attention would invite the scrutiny of the religious establishment, the kind that would ultimately spearhead confrontation between Jesus 
and the Pharisees, and Jesus needed to manage the timing of everything in accord with the hour of his crucifixion. But now, in this section, the confrontation is on. It is here for the first time in John's Gospel that the Pharisees indicate they want to kill Jesus. And though Jesus will be back in Galilee in chapter 6, this confrontation will pick up again in chapter 7, and we'll go through chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and will ultimately reach a feverish pitch at the healing of Lazarus in chapter 11. But it's the healing of the man here in John 5 that John presents as the catalyst for much of this confrontation, specifically because Jesus heals him on the Sabbath violating the the high point of their rigid, dead orthodoxy and exposing the folly of their man-made tradition, which in part is why they hated him so much. And as we relive this account, it climaxes in an incredibly bold claim, one that the Pharisees believe is utterly blasphemous and becomes the main charge they use to justify putting him to death. And really, as we come to this passage, we're going to frame it around the three themes that we see in it. So we're going to see the cure in verses 1 to 9, the controversy at the end of verse 9 all the way to verse 15, and then the the confrontation in verses 16 through 18. And so if you're taking notes, jot down first the cure. The cure, this takes place in the opening nine verses. Look at verse 1. It says there, After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, after these things is an indefinite period of time. We don't know how long it was between the healing of the man whom Jesus healed, who belonged to the gentleman who had pursued him while he was in Cana, the section we looked at last time. And we don't even know which feast this was. But it was likely one of the three feasts that Jews were required to attend during the year. Either the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Pentecost. And since John frequently refers to the Feast of Passover, it's likely either Tabernacles or Pentecost. And Jesus was there in accordance with Deuteronomy 16.15. Verse 2, now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five Porticos. This sheep gate was a, a gate built into the wall of Jerusalem that sheep would pass in and out of, and it was near the temple, which means likely the, the temple sacrifices were led in and out of the city, or at least into the city and not out, because they were being sacrificed before. And so this is a, a gate near the temple called the sheep gate. And near the gate was a pool called Bethesda, which means House of Mercy. And it had five porches, five porticos, overhangings, which would have provided cover from the sun and rain. And that made it desirable for, look at verse 3, and beneath lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Withered there is a word that means immobile or paralyzed. And so they would gather about this pool and they would have cover from the elements under these porches as they waited for the water to stir. Now, if you have an ESV, as I've said, you don't have the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4. And if you have an NASV, as I do, then what you have is brackets. And you have the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 in brackets, which signals 
that that portion of the text is not found in the earliest manuscripts. In fact, one commentator notes that that portion in the manuscript evidence that we have didn't show up until 400 A.D. And so it was likely something that was added after and not a part of the original. It may really be a commentary on what's happening here. Maybe explaining for us what the man is saying in verse 7 where he says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. In fact, again, for those of you who don't have an NASB or KJV, this is what it says, waiting for the moving of the waters. It's the end of verse 3 and the verse 4. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the waters. Whoever then was first, after the stirring up of the water, into the pool was made well from whatever diseases which they were afflicted with. And so it could be that the verses here, end of verse 3 and all of verse 4, provide a rationale for the explanation that's given in verse 7, that there was a superstition at that time, that an angel of the Lord would come down and stir the waters of the pool, and when the water was stirred, the first one in was the one who would receive healing from whatever it was that ailed him. And so that could be what's taking place here. Others say that this water simply had medicinal benefits, medicinal properties, and that it was fed by a spring. And that when the spring fed that pool afresh, it caused the water to stir, and at that time, its medicinal properties were at its highest point. Now, when I sort of consider that explanation, it would seem to me there likely was a superstition, because if the man believes that he needs to be into the water first to be healed, it would seem to be that the explanation we have in the scripture here, the commentary, as it were, at the end of chapter, uh, verse 3 and verse four, uh, and all of verse 4, is explaining what was going on at that time. And so I tend to think there probably was a superstition that existed at that time, and that the idea was first one in is healed, just as the man anticipates, whether it actually took place, whether there were actually healing accounts that were real and genuine, we don't know. But either way, it doesn't much matter. What matters is this, that Jesus takes special notice of this man. He has singled, singled this man out to be the man that he is going to make well. And this man had been there in that condition for a long time. Look at verse 5. A man was there who has been ill for 38 years. I mean, just think about that. 38 years lying on a mat near a pool that when stirred was supposedly able to heal him, and yet he couldn't get into the pool fast enough because somebody would beat him into it. This means he was likely either lame or withered in the sense that he was paralyzed, he was unable to move, or at least significantly paralyzed in the sense that he was limited in his ability to move. And because he's been there for 38 years and hasn't walked in 38 years, just imagine his muscle tone and his, the strength of his body, the frailty of his body. He would have been virtually nothing, just skin and bone, and potentially maybe even lost the motor programming ability to even know how to walk at that point in time, given that it's been 38 years. 
October 6th when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been, had already been a long time in that condition, said to him, do you wish to get well? It's not an easily framed question to ask, but he of course wants to get well. He's there by the pool. He's He wants to get well. He's surrounded by many who want to get well. Of course he wants to get well. But in Jesus asking him this question, what is he doing? He's subtly implying that he has the ability to make him well. The man doesn't catch it. But would you go up to a man who is in this condition and ask him if he wanted to be made well, if you couldn't make him well? Unlikely. And so Jesus is appealing to the man and maybe even implying that he has the power to make him well. And yet, verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am coming, another steps down before me. He, he had really no indication that Jesus would do anything for him. And this is really every man for himself. Seniority didn't matter. He may have been the longest one at that pool. He may, he may have been the longest one who had been there, and there was no one that was there to help this man get into the pool. He didn't have family. There were no friends that were alongside him to, to help him into the pool when the water was stirred. And, and everyone who was at that pool wasn't going to wait for him to get in. They were going in first. It was every man for himself. And so this man's faith is ultimately sealed. He unless Jesus does something, is going to be in that condition until the day he dies. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And instantaneously, through the power of that command, this man was would have returned to him all of the motor programming ability necessary to stand up, pick up his pallet and walk would have just come to him instantaneously 38 years of lying in that condition in a lame or paralyzed state was entirely reversed instantaneous total miraculous healing, there was no rehabilitation, he didn't have to go to the nearest chiropractic clinic and, and kind of work things out. There was no physiotherapy, no physical therapy. This was just get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And it was done. And it wasn't temporary. It wasn't the kind of thing that he would have the ability to walk today and then be back in a lame and paralyzed state tomorrow. This was an undeniable, instantaneous, miraculous healing. So, verse 9, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. I mean, what a scene that would have been. Certainly, the individuals at the pool would have realized that this man who had been there 38 years is now walking. This would have been a scene to be seen. But what's very interesting about this whole account is that John makes no mention of the man's response. There's no mention of gratitude. There's no mention of the man glorifying God. Nothing is expressed about this man. And really, as you work through this account, this man does not come off very well in this whole healing miracle. Especially when you compare it to John 9 and the blind man that we'll see a few chapters from now. 
this command doesn't appear to demonstrate any thanksgiving, any gratitude, doesn't appear to glorify God in the slightest. And as we work through, you'll see that his character just continues to come out as one who wasn't going to align himself with this world. But I want you to consider the nature of this healing miracle, especially against the backdrop of what's pawned off as healing today. For one, notice Jesus didn't select the easiest case. He wasn't healing the man of a sore back or chronic headaches or anything else that's ultimately unverifiable. Instead, he probably selected the most difficult healing case there was, and when he healed him, it was instantaneously verifiable. There was instant verification built in. In fact, even as you work through this account, there's no question that Jesus healed him. They're they're, they're not questioning whether he healed him. The issue is that he did it on the Sabbath. That's the issue, not that he healed him. And so this is a verifiable healing miracle where Jesus singles out the most difficult of all the individuals who may have been at that pool. For two, notice that this had nothing to do with this man's faith. This man had no faith. He didn't even know who Jesus was. This had nothing to do with the man's faith, which means the the power that Jesus had to heal wasn't conditioned on whether or not the person had sufficient faith. In fact, when you work through the gospel accounts, Jesus healed the multitude. And how many, at the end of all of that, were with him and following him? Very few. Jesus healed unbelievers all the time who had zero faith. And for three, there's, there's no abracadabra. There's no pomp and show. There's no emotional manipulation. There's no music being played in the background. There's no working of the man up to some sort of ecstatic experience. There's no slaying in the spirit. This was inconspicuous. This was unexpected. And the most noteworthy aspect of it was its normalcy. The man got up picked up this pallet, and walked. And when you think about the nature of the the healing miracles of Jesus and his healing ministry, why did he heal? Why did he have the power to do the things that he did? He did to authenticate that he's not just sent from God, but is the Son of God. And you can see that, for example, in John 5.36, just a few verses from where we are. Where Jesus says this, but the testimony I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. The miracles that Jesus performed were in place to authenticate him as the Son of God. And really, when you think about the apostles in the apostolic era, they had the same healing ability. And it was in place for what reason? To authenticate that the apostles were God's representatives, that, his, that the, the gospel they preached was the gospel of God. And so the question for us is this. Even if God were still given the ability to perform miraculous healing in our day, would he be giving that ability to false teachers? 
Will he be giving that ability to those who misrepresent the scriptures, those who have really bad theology? Would, would God be seeking to authenticate individuals like that? And of course, the answer is obvious. Of course not. Who would want to authenticate that? How about the father of lies? Satan. And that shouldn't surprise us since we know that in the end times, that's exactly what God says will happen. So that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So listen, there are two things to note about modern-day healing. First, what's pawned off as healing today vastly pales in comparison to the healing that we see in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. And second, those who claim to have the power to, to heal inevitably have really bad theology, awful theology, whereas our Lord's theology was for 38 years would have been something to marvel about, something to glorify God about, to celebrate the, the compassion that had been shown this man. Except for just one problem. Jesus did it on the cross. And so if you take a note to jot down second, the controversy. The controversy. This comes at the end of verse 9. Now it was the Sabbath back. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. And though John here refers to the Jews, it's pretty clear as you work through this gospel that he's referring to the Pharisees. When he refers to the Jews, it's often referring to the religious leaders, the caretakers of the law. And for them, the Sabbath was preeminent in their legalism. The Sabbath was the sacred cow of their legalism. prohibit someone from working on the Sabbath. It was just a, a day that was supposed to be set apart so that whatever you did for the first six days of the week, you didn't do that on the seventh. You were supposed to rest. It was supposed to be a, a gift, a, a blessing to mankind that would promote human flourishing and even provide opportunity to worship God. Under what conditions you were allowed to turn off a lamp on the Sabbath. Or under what conditions you could borrow something on the Sabbath. Since it couldn't be a transaction, so you had to, you had to borrow something in a certain way to avoid it being a transaction. Because a transaction meant that you were working, and that was a violation of the Sabbath. All kinds of ridiculous rules that were intended to sort of be a fence around the Sabbath and were pedantic and burdensome. And so when they see this man carrying his pallet, the only thing they see is a Sabbath violation. They just see a violation of the Sabbath. They don't care whether he was healed or not. 
He is carrying a pallet. This is unacceptable. This is the Sabbath. In fact, even when the man tells them that he was healed, they couldn't care any less. Look at verse, verse 11. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. So they now know this man has been made well. They, they know that he's been healed. And yet, notice their response in verse 12. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? I mean, they just skip the whole been made well part. They're not even going to ask who made you well. The only thing they're concerned about is who told you to pick up your pallet and walk. This is a violation of the Sabbath. And even the response of the man is, is noteworthy. He immediately shifts attention away from himself to Jesus. Look, he said there, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk, which seems to indicate that he has an allegiance to the system. He's been an outcast for 38 years, and he's not about to be an outcast as one who follows Jesus. And so he doesn't even know at this point in time who Jesus is, but either way, he is not going to align himself with the person who healed him. And the fact that he doesn't know who Jesus is comes out in verse 18, where it says the man who was, who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. And by the way, that's going to be a bit of a theme in John's Gospel, where Jesus just slips away. He's at the cusp of being stoned, and he slips away. He's going to slip away a number of times as we work through John's Gospel. Verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. Which implies what? It implies that his condition was the direct result of sin. Now, is that always the case? No, it's not. We know that from John 9, for example, because that was the question the, the disciples asked in John 9 and verse 2. The man was blind, and so the disciples asked the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus responded in verse 3 and said, It was neither that this man sin nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so there isn't always a one-for-one -one correlation between sin and someone's condition. But in the case of the man at the pool of Bethesda, it seems like that may have been the case. And so Jesus says, do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens. What could be worse than 38 years lame at the pool of Bethesda? Hell. Eternal wrath. Eternal judgment. That's what the Lord has in mind here. He's not talking about some sort of new physical condition that could put him back even in the state that he was. He is talking about sin no more, lest you fall into judgment. And that note of judgment comes out even in this section. For example, look at verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus, in this discourse, is going to indicate that the Father has given all judgment to him. Verse 27, and he gave him authority. That is, God the Father gave the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice 
and will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Eternal judgment. And so as Jesus appeals to this man to sin no more, he is he is calling him to get right with God. To mend his way. At this point in time, there's no indication that the gospel has been presented to him. But Jesus is warning this man and calling him to sin no more. So how does the man respond? Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. I mean, that's interesting. Jesus, the one who healed him, comes to him and says, Sin no more that nothing worse happens to you. He doesn't ask any questions. Doesn't want to know how he can be made right with God. Gets word, knows who it is, and goes right to the Pharisees and says, This man is the one who healed me. And then he just stays in the system of God. Stunning contrast with what we'll see in John 9 and the blind man who aligns himself with Jesus and faces excommunication. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. Could Jesus have done this healing the day before? The day after? Did he have to heal the man on the Sabbath? I mean, in one sense, you might say, well, yes, because he, he was fulfilling the Father's will, and so it was clearly the Father's will that he healed this man on the Sabbath. So in that sense, you might say, no, he, he couldn't do it on any other day. But he could have waited until Monday aside from that. He purposefully and intentionally healed this man on the Sabbath to provoke a confrontation with the Pharisees. This is intentional. The rubber is now meeting the road, and he is now dialing up the heat on his interaction with the religious leaders of Israel. And it wasn't the first time he had done this. In fact, look at verse 15 where it says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things. Plural. Jesus healed on the Sabbath on a number of occasions. In fact, I want you to see one in Mark chapter 3. This was in Galilee when he did this, likely in Capernaum. But look at this account. Because it so captures the essence of everything we're seeing in John 5. In Mark 3 and verse 1 it says, He entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They, referring to the Pharisees, were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up come and come forward. And then he said to them, he says to the Pharisees, so he calls this man to come forward, and then he looks at the Pharisees, and he says to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, Sabbath to, to save a life or to kill? Verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus defied their legalistic tendencies regarding the Sabbath. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. 
this was not the first time that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, and he did so purposefully, intentionally, and it was to instigate confrontation with them. The Pharisees hated Jesus, and Jesus hated their false religiosity. And so the confrontation is on. And Jesus is about to take the confrontation another step up. He's about to take it to a whole new level because he's about to make an incredibly bold claim. So if you're taking notes, jot down the word, the confrontation. The confrontation. Verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now consider for a moment, Jesus has attacked their temple practice. He's gone into the temple. He's cleared it out. He's incited their false worship. And now he's attacking their precious Sabbath. He has annihilated the, the, the two most precious instruments of their religiosity, the most fundal aspects of their religious life. And then he says this in verse 14. But he answered them, My father is working until now. And I myself am working. What's he saying? In essence, he's saying the Sabbath commandment, in a sense, doesn't apply anymore. Now, did Jesus keep the Sabbath? Well, certainly, as he was a carpenter prior to his ministry years. He would have kept the Sabbath. He wouldn't have worked on the seventh day. So Jesus kept the Sabbath. There's no question about that. But was healing work? Was healing a violation of the Sabbath? Was a man picking up his pallet and walking a violation of the Sabbath? No. And beyond that, the question is this. Does God cease from his work on the seventh day? Does God need to take a day's rest, one day out of seven, as he rules over the universe? You say, well, didn't he take a day's rest in Genesis when he created the world in six days? Yes, he did. One, because the work was finished. Two, to model a day of rest for mankind. But on that seventh day, did God cease to providentially rule the entire universe? Did he cease? To sustain the very creation he created? Of course not, because if he had of, the entire universe would have imploded. And by the way, who upholds all things by the word of his power? The Son. Who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the one seventeen in him all things hold together. And so when Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working, he's claiming to be equal with God and Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, you could even call him the author of the Sabbath, because he was the one through whom all things came into being, John 1-3. 
us in Mark 3, or Mark 2, actually, just before the passage we read in Mark, declares the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He did, and he gave it to mankind as a blessing. And that means what? The Pharisees don't know who they're talking to. And the problem is, is they don't know the Son, and they don't know the Father. Because elsewhere, Jesus says, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father. They do not know God. And therefore, they can't recognize the Son when he is standing before them. Now, you have to understand. Because you might think, well, did Jesus intend to convey what we're going to see the Pharisees took from what they said, from what he said? And the answer is absolutely. Could Jesus have just corrected their view of the Sabbath? Absolutely. Could he have corrected their bad theology? Could he have corrected their wrong thinking, their, their legalism, their religiosity? Of course he could, but he didn't. Instead, he made a claim that, if true, is utterly staggering, and if false, is totally blasphemous. And that's how they take it. Blasphemy. And again, that becomes the most significant charge they hold against him as they put him on trial in preparation for his crucifixion. Make no mistake, Jesus knew exactly what he was saying, knew exactly what he was intending, and the way they heard it was exactly what he meant. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself with God. They've heard him loud and clear. Now, did Jesus let up at that point? No. Look at verse 19 and following. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does also in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom, life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That means the Son has shared an equal honor with the Father. You say, well, what's honor? Worship. These men want to kill Jesus because they see him as a lawbreaker and blasphemer. But what they need to do is bow their knee and worship him. Because he's the very one through whom all things came into being. He is the very one whom the Father has sent into the world to accomplish redemption. He is Lord of Lords. And he's worthy of that worship. When it 
it comes down to is that is the only appropriate response to the revelation of the Son. When the Son has been presented, when he has been disclosed to you, and you have beheld the Son, the only appropriate response at that point is to bow your knee in humble submission and trust in him with all of your heart. To do anything less than that, to do anything less than worship him as co-equally God, to do anything less than that is to fail to worship the Father because the Father sent the Son into the world to be the, the centerpiece of worship. The Father has given to the Son the name which is above every name. It will be at his name that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is And so to refuse the Son, the worship that is due Him, is to refuse the Father, the worship that is due Him. If you reject the Son, then you reject the Father also. If you do not have the Son, then you do not have the Father also. You you cannot have the Father without also having the Son. sent him to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin, a guilt offering for sin, whereby on that cross the Father poured his righteous wrath and indignation upon the Son, where the Son swallowed up that indignation on behalf of all who would ever believe in his name, gave up his last breath, died, went into the grave, rose on the third day, and is now seated at the right hand of God. The only right response is to turn from your sin and self and turn to Christ by faith and receive the salvation that he has accomplished through his shed blood. And what an opportunity today that you have before you right now that if you haven't believed on the Son, to believe on Him. The the Son is, is being offered to you in this moment. Heaven is a witness with me that the Son died on the cross and rose from the grave, and He is the Savior of the world. And if you would believe on His name, come to Him by faith, you will be saved from your sin and eternal judgment and, and everything that befalls a person who dies in their sin. So come unto Him and believe on Him this day and be reconciled to God. The Father who sent the Son for this very purpose. Things are going to heat up. The Lord is going to carry on into an extended discourse here in chapter 5. In chapter 6, we're going to see a confrontation back in Galilee over his body and blood and its significance for salvation. And then in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, it's just going to be battle and confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees as they stubbornly reject him.